Hey everybody, it's Michael. I'm interrupting uh, at the beginning of this, uh, our second episode on Station Eleven, uh, to make a brief announcement that in the coming weeks, so hopefully in the month of January of 2019, which is starting tomorrow, um, <laughs> uh, we, uh, Ethan and I are going to be doing a special listener response special. So we've gotten a, a few comments about, uh, different books and things and questions and input, and we thought that that was important for us to share. And so we want to give you the opportunity to give us some feedback on even any book that we've already done, uh, any book that we're going to do, uh, any book that you'd like us to do, or any other thing that you'd like us to talk about. Just give us some uh, some feedback. Even if you want to talk about the scotch, we'll talk about the scotch. Uh, we'll break that rule. Uh, so um, give us some feedback. You can go to the contact section of the tapestryradio.org website. Uh, you can uh, go to the comments below this episode or below any episode, really. Uh, hit us up on Twitter. I'm at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. Ethan is at Bjartlett, B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T, uh, or at Room with Scotch for the uh, the show itself. Uh, you can also go to the Tapster Radio Tap House on Facebook, post your comments or questions there. Uh, just hit us up with uh, any sort of uh, ideas, responses, questions, comments, anything uh, that you want us to talk about. We will give voice to you. Uh, and then we will uh, respond to it. Um, yeah, so that's that's it. Uh, with that, I'll stop interrupting this episode, and I will let you listen to it. Uh, so, talk to us. Bye. show Michael Lillian the Room of Scotch and I'm your host Michael Lilienthal and this is my guest who are Yeah, hello everybody. I am <laughs> And in this episode we are continuing to discuss Station Eleven by Emily Simpson St. John Mandel Mandel. And you really <laughs> just making sure you insult her one <laughs> I'm really trying to just cover all my bases. Well, I think you're uncovering if you know what I mean. Whoa. Just mean you're, Do you want me to put the explicit tag on this podcast? I just mean you're exposing us. Rated R for nudity, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, but before we keep talking about it, let's pour some more scotch and... Remind everybody what we're doing. Yep. Uh, we need to hear the rules. So... Karen? Karen, what are the rules? 
Rule 1. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule 2. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, Gentle listener. listener. You always say that, but it's just Karen walking into the room and reading <laughs> stuff into a microphone. She walked in here under the magic of podcasting. Oh, wow. <laughs> if that's if that's what a magic spell is. I, I mean, how do you think you managed to marry her? It was yeah, magic that of was... podcasting. Well, it was magic of some sort. Oh, podcasting. We didn't start this podcast until a solid like year and a half later sure wait does that mean that we've been doing this podcast for most of your marriage statistically and technically yes it does (laughs) not sure how i feel about that (laughs) but clearly something's keeping us going so right yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah. So, all right. So now you know the rules. So once we clink our glasses and salute, those rules take effect. <laughs> what are we drinking, Ethan? We are drinking Isla Storm, which is apparently the correct pronunciation of that region. Isla. Isla. Isla Storm. Uh. Yes. That's really all I know about it because it has like a beautiful label. Yep. And the the it's name not Isla like Storm a name brand or anything. It's just single malt Scotch whiskey, distilled, matured, and bottled in Scotland. So like the Highlands and Islands Scotch Whiskey Company Limited. Yeah, and it has tasting notes which we refuse to read, and that's like all of the labeling on it. That's it, which is kind of nicely minimalist, but very doesn't give us it a does... lot to talk about, except that we have just talked about it for like right. two entire there, minutes. There's a picture of that storm that we mentioned in the last episode yeah. also. Yeah. That's, yep. Uh, but, all right, so. Well, I think we've pushed this clink, glass clinking yep. excursion far enough. I agree. Prost. Slancha. Yeah, what did I leave dangling? I don't know. You were talking about this book, and we were both 
both talking about this book. And it's a good summary of our previous episode. There we go. That's what you're talking about. You are um, now caught up, gentle listener. <laughs> good job. <laughs> good job to you, gentle listener, for catching up. Um, yeah. So, um, did you have any uh, burning thoughts from the previous episode that were coming to mind? I feel like you were thinking of something. Otherwise, I can talk. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'm fine with either of those scenarios, frankly. Okay. Um, but uh, I guess the one thing that I probably will kind of uh, kick myself for not bringing up. Mm. Um, well, I have two things, but there's okay. one that's major. All right. um, and that's one of the things that I did kind of kind of dangle in front of the uh, gentle listener at the end of the last episode as if they were some sort of cat. And my... Watch it. There are children in the audience. And my intellectual musings were a string that I was dangling in front of the cat. Oh, okay. What did you think I was saying? I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Well, I don't know. neither do the children, and that's <laughs> the important part. I guess, you know, if they live in ignorant bliss. <laughs> uh, As all good. children should. Yeah, actually, that's kind of a sub-theme of this book, ignorant bliss. Ignorance is bliss, you know, because if you know a thing, then you know it, and you can't be blissfully ignorant anymore. Good, and good analysis. This book. So there you go. Do you want to talk about that for like a No, I really don't. That... Go ahead. You had no, subject. but you are correct about that. Yep. I, I do want to acknowledge. So, um, so one of the things that we like started to touch on, um, one of the several sets of tensions obtaining throughout this book, I would say, mm-hmm. is the tension between does everything happen for a reason? Yeah, and. That's sort of one one extreme end of the spectrum, and on the other end is everything sort of happens by chance. There's no right. like, there's no such thing as a meaningful coincidence. Coincidences just are coincidences, right? Right. Um, and there's an interesting sort of dualism to that question. Sure. Because if everything happens for a reason, and you, I think, quite correctly called called that phrase sort of pseudo-religious gibberish on the mm-hmm. last episode or something to that effect um, something like that but if everything happens for a reason then that does also mean that bad things happen for a reason right um that means that like if a you know hate-mongering murderer like the prophet keeps escaping death that happens for a reason right um whereas you know on on the other sort of end of that, um, you have what seems like a very bleak perspective of, you know, nothing ha- nothing sort of happens for any kind of reason. Um, but you could say that the flip side of that is that you get to sort of build your own meaning out of things. Right. Um, and I think that tension, um, you know, it is, it is throughout this book. And uh, it's part of what's interesting to me about it is that that theme might be what places this book for me most squarely not only in sort of a shakespearean wellspring but in a very american one and i do mean that in you know both like united states literature canadian literature sort of the american continent as Mm. a whole um that that obsession with sort of determinism versus Mm -hmm. free will um easily goes back to what are considered some of the first great um you know authors in the in the united states for example nathaniel hawthorne Mm -hmm. um herman melville Mm -hmm. mark twain that was 
you, you could quite easily argue that the idea of determinism versus free will or um, chance versus versus destiny um, that that tension was like an obsession of his mm. almost pretty much throughout his entire literary career mm-hmm. um, so I think that that uh, uh, you know is an interesting sort of attention for especially for a book to explore that's set you know largely in canada and the united states right um and i don't know if it's if it is supposed it's supposed to be some sort of you know colonial thing that that you know the colonies of the british empire are obsessed with that for some for Mm. some reason that you could tie it to sort of the idea of manifest destiny or the way that ways that that idea came out also in the british empire this idea that you sort of have an empire um and yes it does bad things but like almost the empire's existence and later the sort of american empire that the united states became it it exists so it's it's existence is almost an argument for its existence Mm. um like that that uh Tension really plays into a lot of those things, which of course comes back to what you were saying last episode is the the one word theme of this book, the mm. idea of civilization, mm-hmm. right? Like what, um, what does that tension have to say about civilization? Right. And, you know, you, you can, you can do an argument from sort of, uh, effects, what, what effects does each worldview have um you know i think i think that's sort of a theme throughout this book um and it's it's interesting because the the effects of the the worldview that says everything happens for a reason are portrayed as very negative especially the farther into the prophet's career that we get Mm -hmm. um whereas the worldview of sort of not assuming that assuming that everything happens by chance or the idea that you build your own meaning mm-hmm. um sort of centers in clark and in his much sort of gentler and and more welcoming approach right and something we didn't necessarily talk about a whole lot last episode is um kirsten um who's arguably the main character mm. of the book who is caught in between she's caught right at the center of that tension yes um she almost she becomes the victim yeah. Of, uh, wow, I can't remember any character names from this book. But, That's all right. Um, she becomes a victim of her husband's next wife's worldview that everything happens for a reason. That's Miranda. Yeah. No, never mind. Go on and say the thing that you were saying, and I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> That's okay. Because I thought we were no, talking Kirsten... about a very different character. Yes, we are talking about different characters. <laughs> Um, Kirsten being the one who's the young girl at the beginning of the book. Um, oh, yes, yes. And then traveling with the Traveling Symphony. Yeah. Um, and uh, if I remember right, it was her idea to put on the caravan, survival is insufficient. Right. That phrase from Star Trek Voyager. Right. Um, which I remember that episode. I'm a nerd. <laughs> um, but that theme is kind of along the lines of that determinism versus individualism. Sort yeah. Of, you know, idea like... That that uh, American spirit of I can define it for myself yeah. is exactly that. Survival is insufficient. Right. Um, where if if civilization is just being alive, that's right. just survival. That's 
insufficient in right. this view. It's more than survival. Which is and so she's caught in this tension of I need to stay alive, but also I need to find more meaning. Which is why she goes with the traveling symphony. Why she uh, is focused on art and right. stuff, and eventually finds her way to the museum of civilization. Right, and it it occurs to me there's an interesting parallel because you know you you sort of said that the part of the American idea could be summarized as survival is insufficient. Sure. Right. Um, and you could argue that that's like the a version a, a way to summarize the driving impulse of like the the pioneer mm-hmm. movement or whatever you want to call it um that that the driving impulse behind that was that people were coming from somewhere where they could presumably survive they could yep. be alive and they could remain alive but that um sort of hope of of free will of of setting their own life of of you know creating themselves or recreating themselves that's what drove them into arguably a fairly survivalist yep um situation you know the Mm -hmm. the pioneer stories um and you know whether whether true or or fictional you know they always center around that idea of survival and you have to Mm -hmm. make it across the plains and um you know survive the weather survive hostile native tribes uh-huh. um you know it, it becomes very much a survival uh uh that that becomes sort of the appeal or the uh main action i guess Emphasis. of stories like that yeah and even even when they're like children's stories like the the little house on the prairie books yeah. they're very much about survival but like that survival is not just survival for its own sake. Mm-hmm. If if those people had wanted survival for its own sake, they would have stayed back east yep. in you know the the crowded cities or you know right. where they where they had very little freedom but guaranteed survival. That that's the inherent trade that you're making. Yep. That you could almost say the the pioneer caravan symbolizes is the trade of the mm-hmm. guarantee of survival for the freedom to right. Um, recreate yourself which is an interesting parallel um imagery there the pioneer wagons versus the wagons of the traveling symphony yep which Which... i believe is how the traveling symphony is introduced um as a caravan yes yes uh yeah so you have that very first section of the book um one the theater and then Section two, uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream, yep. literally starts with a description of the caravan. Yep. Um, and, you know, you have a second paragraph of that, of, mm-hmm. of chapter seven. Most of them were on foot to reduce the load on the horses. Um, within a, a page or two here, it's, you know, the, the actual uh, uh, wagons, so to speak, that they use are described. And... You know, they're they're re sort of repurposed and reclaimed automobiles that yep. are no longer functional, but like it's a very similar um uh image to like a caravan yep. or, a, or a, a pioneer caravan, you know. Oh, you could use that same descriptor, oh a lot of them walked on foot to reduce the load of, on the horses. That's yep. you know, when you see the the pioneer caravan portrayed in Western films, um and most of most of the people are walking alongside mm-hmm. of the wagons that's two 
make the load on the horses as as uh, light as possible. Yeah. Um, so it's a very similar sort of mm-hmm. imagery there. Can I point out an interesting uh, difference, though, between this caravan and the Pioneer caravans? Yeah. Um, this caravan is going in a circle. Yeah, yeah. It, it's repeating itself. Right. Like, the... This, the life that it is found beyond just survival is mm-hmm. itself some form of stagnation. Mm-hmm. They're stuck in a rut. They're yeah. and until they run into trouble. Um, right. Then it changes, and then they find a new destination, and then they travel with a destination in mind. Right. But otherwise, they're just going place to place and keep going with no it's, end in sight. Yeah. Um. Which is arguably sort of about the fact that, you know, in the pioneer days, sort of the idea was that, that America was like an open yeah and sort of an open-ended land. And like, as opposed to now, even after the apocalypse, like everything is mapped, everything is sort of explored. Mm-hmm. So there isn't like an open destination to go to. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a closed loop. Right. But at the same time, I think it's a different sort of survival balance that's being, um, negotiated uh you, the uh the in the pioneer days it was really that trading of the certainty of survival in for um you know the the freedom whereas this is like trying to both achieve a certain amount of freedom and not being tied down and being able to do the art that they want they can do um while balancing that with you know as much of a guarantee of safety as possible. Yeah. The the circuit is such that it sort of avoids notoriously dangerous mm-hmm. areas. And I think I think that you're right that you point out that um A, that that's impossible mm-hmm. and B, in a in a sense it's when the danger sort of is is uh, forced upon them, that's when I, that's almost like the tragedy where they lose mm-hmm. several people it, and but it's it's a result of the fact that they're trying to do two two contradictory things at once, right? Which again is a Shakespearean tragedy. Yeah, but mm-hmm. you know we talked enough about Shakespeare in the <laughs> last episode, right? And we will talk a bunch more about Shakespeare and not this book this episode, but mm, yeah, I'm sure. Mm. Anyway, oh yeah, definitely. Um, I want to point out with um in conjunction with this idea of survival is insufficient and mm. how it actually connects. Um, explicitly with my one word theme. Yes. It's on page 183, right about near the middle of the book. Um, chapter 32. Um, Jeevan is, um, I don't know if that's how you pronounce that name. Jeevan. Um, yeah, I, I, is, anyway, it's, it's, um, a month and a half after the fall and, uh, he's living with his brother who's in a wheelchair and they're having a conversation and, um, Frank is being existential and stuff. Yes. And near the end of this chapter on page 183, he says, After I was shot, this is the uh, brother in the wheelchair, Frank, when they told me I wouldn't walk again and I was lying in the hospital, I spent a lot of time thinking about civilization, what it means, and what I value in it. I remember thinking that I never wanted to see a war zone again. As long as I live, I still don't. There's still a world out there, Jeevan said, outside this apartment. I think there's just survival out there, Jeevan. I think you should go out there and try to survive. I can't leave you. I'll leave first, Frank said. I've given this some thought. What do you mean, he asked. But he knew what Frank meant. And just that idea that Frank is telling Jeevan to go and survive. 
because after he has analyzed civilization, he's decided whether it's civilization or not, what's necessary for his brother is to survive, but not for him. Yeah. And somewhere in there, the idea of survival and civilization are entangled. Yeah. And I'm not entirely sure how to line it up perfectly, but like it, it's really coming across that Frank just has this figured out. Right. In, in his own mind. He's figured out civilization and survival and all of that. Well, and I think that, you know, part of part of what's going on with Frank as a character, yeah. he, it's very revealing when he says, I never wanted to see a war zone again, and I still mm-hmm. don't. Because um, I think that's what Frank thinks is out there, is essentially... Yep. A war zone yep. and you know the if you if you read the post-apocalypse passages throughout the rest of the novel it's difficult to say that he's wrong right no it's, exactly it's you know constant war constant like kirsten um when when she's doing literally anything she always has one eye on what how the situation could evolve into combat or yep. into you know, the need to literally fight someone else to survive. Yeah, exactly. It, so let me ask this. In Frank's mind, is is that civilization or is that lack of civilization? No, I think he's making a direct equivalence between the breakdown of civilization and, and a war, war zone. zone. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, people who write about war, literature about war, like, uh, it's, it's a pretty common theme is the idea mm-hmm. that war either is the breakdown of civilization, that, you know, that's... Sort of the that idea that war is all negotiations failing, um, so it's it's the breakdown of civilization all by itself, or the idea that um, war itself creates the breakdown of civilization. Sure, that you can never have a civilized war that you know once you get down into the trenches, um, that's no longer civilization. You yeah, know, that in in uh, say July of eighteen sixty three that perhaps Boston, Massachusetts had civilization and perhaps Atlanta, Georgia had civilization because I think that was before it got, you know, burned down. Um, Mm -hmm. But in early July of 1863, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania was no longer civilization. Sure. It was mere, in Frank's terms, it was mere survival or the attempt at survival. It certainly was not not civilization. So could we say with this caravan, the Traveling Symphony, that... Um, when they say survival is insufficient, they mean what is what is sufficient and necessary is civilization. Yeah, well, and survival. It's, it's one of those. It's a paradox I know I've heard sure. elsewhere, um, but it's the idea that civilization is created for survival, right? Like mm-hmm. in in sort of a most basic sense, civilization is people coming together and you know sort of farming and and trading and um doing the sort of things that people can do together that they could never do by themselves sure um so like it's it civilization is created out of a need for survival but ultimately the goal of civilization should not be survival um because i mean I I had another way of phrasing it, and now I've lost it. But yeah, it's it's basically this idea that um, if you just if you just wanted to survive, you wouldn't need civilization. Civilization is for 
something greater. Sure. Um, I, I remember getting the distinct impression in here. Um, it, it was never said explicitly, but the idea... Um, oh, who's the playwright who has this? Uh, the line, hell is other people. Um, um, it's not Sartre. I was about to say it's not Sartre. It was the first <laughs> name that came to my mind. Right. Camus. Camus! Yeah. Yes, I think it's Camus. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so that, that idea comes through, but also, again, attention here, um, is hell is other people, and you get that impression with the Traveling Symphony encountering yeah. people who create hell for them, but also... Well, not only that, but it's explicitly said that they create hell for themselves. Yeah, no. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I actually saw it earlier, so I think I can find it quick. Yeah. Uh, so the beginning of chapter 10, the problem with the traveling symphony, symphony was the same problem suffered by every group of people everywhere since before the collapse, which every group of people everywhere, you could easily analogize that to mean every civilization, you know, what a civilization except a group of people, Mm -hmm. um, undoubtedly since well before the beginning of recorded history. And then it literally it just goes into details. all of the different, like, minor gripes and quibbles and, and mm-hmm. sort of BS that, you know, the the individual members of the symphony have with each other. And they're just sort mm-hmm. of the sort of thing that if you put almost any group of people together, especially with some element of randomness, that they mm-hmm. if you put them together and keep them together for long enough, Eventually, these spats will develop. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, here on page 49, um, uh, Kirsten's friend August is coming up to her and sort of sees that she's in a bad mood. Mm, mm-hmm, and yeah. Literally, he says, you okay? And Kirsten says, hell is other actors. Yeah, okay. Which I... is a great little, like someone who's clearly been in the theater world yep you know like uh yeah i think anyone who who has been like in any kind of theater production will recognize this that line that exactly very famous yeah. famous line well not only and... as a reference but also as like the perfect summary of how you feel some days yep yep especially with you know uh actors yeah no exactly. <laughs> I, I was trying to find my the way to couch that but it's really just actors. it's just actors yeah no. and having both been actors in our time we can right we can we say, can say that so don't hate us yeah don't add us <laughs> don't, don't as the kids say at us which we barely understand what it means <laughs> right <laughs> even though we're both on twitter right but um so that yeah that idea hell is other actors hell is other people yeah but also you need them Right. You need other people. That's right. the tension. Right. Um, and you need them not just for survival, but for what's more than survival. Right. Um, and the... I, I'm having a hard time deciding if Frank is fully correct. Mm. That, you know, he's certainly correct to some extent. Like, I think he has a realistic picture of what is out there. Right. Um... But I I don't know that he sort of I I think his his whole thing here is more of a in chapter thirty two I think it's more of sort of a a despair 
Um, yeah. He's he's sort of gotten to one side of a spectrum and slid off into mm-hmm. into despair. Sure. Um, and you know maybe it's it's just that he's sort of tired and he doesn't have one more fight left in him. But yeah. Um, you know it's a form of it's a form of giving up that I don't think is sort of advocated by anyone else in the in the novel mm-hmm. um yeah i don't know if i had any other thoughts on that no Those that's right better. um i've got some questions for you regarding the structure of the book okay um and i don't know if i have unlike my initial challenge to you i don't know if i have an answer to these okay but um i can't decide if it's two separate questions or a twofold question sure so I'll just ask both of them, and we'll go as they... And I will completely are. fail to answer, and, and there we are. Then we'll be par for the course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess, okay, question part A, why is it called Station Eleven, the book? And part B, why is it divided into nine parts? Um, I did think about this as I was... Uh, sort of blowing through this book. I did read this book in less than twenty-four hours. Wow! Yeah, I just like that's impressive. Yeah, I mean, it was you know, I I my normal work work week or whatever. I have Sundays and Mondays off, and I just started it on a Sunday night. Um, you know, couldn't like kind of couldn't sleep that night, so I got up and read it for a while, and then. Fell asleep, woke up in the morning, realized I had already read half of it, and just spent the the day reading the other half, and then mm-hmm. also reading things not seen right after that. Got it. Um, so yeah, I read this novel and our next novel it, both in a 48-hour period. Wow. So. All right. I am pretty proud of that. I just, yeah. <laughs> that's literally that's all good. I wanted to say about that matter. But I was thinking about what, if anything, the sections sort of yeah. mean um and if there's like any kind of numerical symbolism and i right. i don't i i didn't get anything like if any listeners have any thoughts on that matter um i actually would you know super enjoy hearing from you but um yeah i you know i think like as someone who tends to like try to impose a structure on a story and then figure out what the story is and then not understand why i end up super frustrated with the story (laughs) um i think my natural instinct would have been to try to do this in like five parts right well because of the heavy emphasis on the shakespearean aspect of things you would think five parts makes sense yeah 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 yeah. and that Um, was my initial thought too because this book doesn't have a table of contents right and so i could cheat and page ahead and find each part and count but that gets tiresome after a while right and so instead i was just okay we'll get to part five and that'll be the last no that's not it okay we've got another one or you know maybe it's 11 because it's station 11 and that'd be cute nope i could have seen seven parts so you'd have like five acts and then a prologue and an epilogue but i think really the only thought i have on that is just that the the author knew what she was doing as far as not trying to sort of like impose that on the book if it didn't fit naturally because all the parts sort of work as units very sort of naturally right um i know there could be something there with symphonic structure i suppose yeah uh sure symphonies normally have four 
Yeah. So if you take the four parts of a symphony and the five acts of a Shakespeare play, you get nine. I guess there's that. Yeah. Um, but when when we start reaching that far, I start to just be like, is that anything? Right. Or like... is that just like... The, there's a limited number of numbers right um, and I'm, I'm at the point where it, like that's my best guess and yeah i can't say I mean, anything else i'm told that symphonies can sort of have whatever oh sure number of parts you want like there are some symphonies with a pretty high number of like shorter sections and so forth but i don't know really any more about symphonic structure than like much more than like what we've just said so right um a second reading would be interesting to see like Symphonies sometimes do have that, like, A-B-A mm -hmm. structure, and it would be interesting to see if there's, like, stuff at the beginning and the end that is reflective. Yeah. Anything like that. I didn't... Nothing like that jumped out at me. Hmm. Um, so, there's that. The Why the book is called Station Eleven. Yeah. Um, there are a bunch of guesses that I have, and I don't think they have to be like mutually exclusive sure and i also don't think any of them have to be correct but um <laughs> station 11 obviously is sort of the central image of this book right um in several senses it the the production of the comic book ties several of the threads together that like might not have joined up at all mm -hmm. um otherwise uh the image of sort of an isolated you know station in space with um a lot of very sort of lost and struggling people and one person who's trying to trying to sort of save it like it's it's very reflective of you know both sort of an existential like Sartre Camus yeah. type of um worldview I guess but also it's uh reflective just of like how a lot of the characters who are trying to carry civilization forward feel in this book um mm. between clark and the traveling symphony itself and um so forth so um you know and and that plus it's the fiction within the fiction yeah and as we talked talked about last episode it's just another way of sort of calling attention to the the fictiveness of it and and yeah. sort of deepening the fiction that way um so those are my best guesses i do feel sure. like there's some obvious other maybe better ideas that i'm i'm missing here but um that's what i can think of mm -hmm. um yeah yeah i mean you've got the tension even on station 11 as you learn more about the story as it's described yeah. between dr 11 and the, um, what are they, the people of the undersea or something. Right. Um, Except it's interesting that that uh, Miranda, as she gets farther into the story, becomes less interested in the Doctor and more interested in the actual citizens of the undersea. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's significant to, like, sort of where the arc of the book goes. Sure. Well, as it, well as to Miranda's character itself, really. Something interesting, too, about Miranda's character, and it, it was interesting to me that when I suggested that Kirsten was the main character, you thought I was talking about Miranda. Yes. Um, which is just an, a fascinating thing that we can touch on and talk about a little bit For anyway. For one thing, I, I thought but, that Kirsten could have been called Miranda. 
Oh, certainly. And I almost wondered she, if... She, she more explicitly portrays the character of Miranda from The Tempest. Yeah, yeah. And I almost wondered... I'm sure that that, that reversal is intentional and that oh, it yeah. calls attention to sort of the existential situation of the actual character of Miranda being actually more reflective right um than kirsten's almost more obvious Mm -hmm. cognate there Mm -hmm. yeah um but then you've got in the character of miranda who is a fascinating character and honestly i think one of my frustrations with the book and we can talk about this more later was just that i didn't know who to follow and care about yeah um but miranda was fascinating kirsten like i was interested in initially but then it seemed like the author got less interested in her yes but um miranda was very interesting to me and what made her interesting was she seemed to be almost one of those double cast characters yes yes when she was married to arthur she lived in a fantasy world right she her whole life was just about her art that's what she was doing and that's her, how she subsisted her art and her romance with yep. art yep exactly um she had the dog luli who became part of the yeah, art yeah yeah um who interestingly then was reincarnated as the prophet's dog right um it's just fascinating double little, cast yep double cast again um but uh, uh otherwise and you know it's talked about explicitly that she's quirky and people are asking if she's going to publish it and that's never been the goal it's right. never a money-making sort of thing right. she self-publishes a handful of copies never sees a cent for it it's not only not a money-making sort of thing it's not a like fame right thing it's not right. even meant to be Which, one of those things where you become famous for the art even though it doesn't actually sell very well right which just kind of adds this extra little layer to this idea of survival being insufficient because mm-hmm. For her, the art isn't survival. It doesn't. Right. It it it's in a totally different sphere from survival. Right. It's not connected even remotely. Right. But then, when she's divorced from Arthur, she has a relatively successful job. She seems right. like really well off. Right. In this job that she has, and so she's living very pragmatically. Right. And yet, she continues with the art. Right. And continues to publish her art her on her own she continues to draw and paint uh and write and create this way and so yeah. that that's that sort of double cast where it's someone who lives totally in a fantasy world right and then someone who lives in the world and yet is living beyond survival right in both cases she manages to have a source for survival one being right. her husband's income and one being her own income um but she's about the art in both cases yeah yeah and even her even her professional career gets described i think even by herself at one point as sort of an artistic endeavor yeah and like it's almost when she sort of figures out that that business that there's an art to it that there's you know um that it can be creative in a very real sense Mm -hmm. um i think that's when the switch flips for her and she is able to be that sort of stupendous like business person right that she turns into um it's it's when she figures out that this is another form of creativity yeah um so it's even even that part of her life is still about the art yep mm-hmm. um which interestingly she is essentially living the life of a miranda living right. on an island right and yeah <laughs> um, yeah yeah no but um 
just touching on that too, the, the idea of the main character, I think um, I, I, very explicitly it's Kirsten who's mm-hmm. the main character. Yeah. That being said, Miranda is the more interesting character. Yeah. And I'll say this, when Miranda died and her story was wrapped up and Kirsten's was still going on in the yeah. book, um, it was really at that point when Miranda was no more mm-hmm. that I was ready for the book to be done. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know if I would have pushed it to that extreme, but I can definitely see Or at least to conclude itself rapidly. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, like one of the most interesting parts of it was clearly done and yeah it it was in danger of losing my interest at that point for sure um and i i don't i agree that i think kirsten was supposed to be the main character Mm -hmm. i suspect that the author and again this is psychoanalyzing and even though i do it every single episode i don't (laughs) consider it a real valid form of criticism um but so do as you say not as you do exactly except what you're doing is also saying exactly thank <laughs> you um but yeah i <laughs> i hate you um i mean yes you're correct but also i hate you mm-hmm. um i forgot what i was saying though oh kirsten so yeah, yeah i i think i suspect that Kirsten was supposed to be the main character sure. and that the other stuff was supposed to be much more much have much less stage time as it were sure and I think the author got interested in yeah what had been going to just be sort of side plots or backstory stuff and made it more a part of the main story and I don't think that that's necessarily wrong but no I did I did kind of wish some of the stuff that was introduced with Kirsten was resolved more. Sure. Or or was developed more and then resolved. Though, in retrospect, I almost wonder if some of that was the point. Yeah. Because, like, in a lot of post-apocalypse... Like I said, ask what's annoying you about the book and ask, is that the point? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm starting to dislike how true that is. <laughs> um, which obviously means that that's the point. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, so... Like, you know, for, like, one one just specific example I can think of is uh, towards the beginning of when we're introduced to Kirsten as mm-hmm. an, uh, and a, I think she's an adult. She's, like, 20 or something. Yeah, no, like, um, 20 years after the fall, and she was, like, an 8-year-old kid. Oh, yeah, so, so she's, like, roughly our age. Huh. Yep. Um, Weird. So, I guess that makes us adults, which... What? I'd like to not think no about one that. Told please, me that. please, let's not. Okay, I'm starting to panic. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's okay. Breathe. Okay, okay. Breathe. Still Pick a up child. that paper bag. Still a child. I have Go a punchline, but I can't say it because I don't want to lose. Anyway, okay. <laughs> um, well, you really just made that explicitly sound like just the letter K. <laughs> Very skeptical letter K. <laughs> Uh, what am I saying? K, oh, K is a pretty skeptical letter. I mean, well, when of you the just leave it, alphabet K is is the most skeptical. I think that's and you heard it here first, folks. Michael Lilienthal, that we need on a T-shirt. <laughs> um. Anyway, Kirsten, something about Kirsten. You know what we need on oh, a T-shirt? What that we need on a T-shirt? <laughs> yeah, that that's true. We do need that, and also yeah. Anyway, Kirsten, I'm gonna finish this point. Okay. 
We've been pretty good up to this point. We have, and we I have, am going to keep deteriorating. Us, I'm, Civilization I'm like, is coming to an end. It's breaking tr- down. I'm rapidly trying to build the track in front of this train as it's barreling <laughs> after us, and it's nearly caught up. But Kirsten, okay. So, for example, in one part of of uh, towards I think the beginning of when Kirsten is is introduced in the after the fall period, there's talk about like she used to go with go date whatever you want to call it whatever dating is after the end of the world right um this other this other person in their troop named saeed and then at one point she like slept with someone that they encountered on the road just sort of as like a boredom slash maybe anger like buried anger whatever a very unhealthy way of dealing with whatever relationship tension she was feeling yep and then, like, their relationship sort of ended, and then, like, Saeed is grumpy to her in a scene, and that's actually, I think, part of what prompts the whole uh, Hella's other actors, and then she mm-hmm. says, and also yep. ex-boyfriends. Um, right. So, like, in sort of a normal post-apocalypse novel that you would find, like, on uh, in, like, a hardcore genre, you know, like ghettoized in the science fiction section at barnes and noble kind of thing like that would be what a hundred pages of the story was about. oh yeah would be like the conflict between her and saeed and and you know it would probably be over the course of a longer thing and eventually that would be one of the subplots that would get resolved before mm-hmm. the big climax something like that um but here it's just kind of left it's it's yeah. less the story and it's more a fact of life and I wish there was kind of more of that and more stuff about Kirsten, but I don't know that if there had been that um, the author's intention would have been served by making more of those like external plot arcs for her. You know what just occurred to me as you were talking? Yes. That ties in with my whole idea of what annoys you might be the point. And it goes back to what we were talking about in the first episode of this book. Um, that idea of people needing to be reminded that it's fiction. Yeah. I think that's really it. We need to be reminded that it's fiction because we want more out of this character because she interests us and we want her relationship more. Huh. But we're not getting that because she's not real. Uh Uh-huh. She, yeah. And that's actually, again, um, and I mentioned Wilson Knight, last episode this this shakespeare Mm -hmm. critic whose book i'm in the middle of um and something he said makes me think that what you said a very well could be very intentional and b is very shakespearean Uh because um knights a lot of his emphasis is on the fact that people try to like analyze shakespeare's characters like they're real people yep which for one thing you know tells you something about shakespeare's skill at drawing characters but for another thing knight sort of points out that quite often the characters are part of a pattern mm-hmm. and that the whole play is constructing a certain pattern and yeah. creating a certain dramatic um world or universe or arc um and that often the point is much more about that whole that the the mm-hmm. main character is the center of and that they might do things that seem from a strictly like realist or psychological standpoint seem irrational but it's because they fit right. 
part of that pattern. And maybe Kirsten has her place in the pattern sure. and that's all we need from her. Right. I, I think we, we tend, you know, I think we convince ourselves that we see characters as not real people, even as we are treating them as real people. Sure. By convincing ourselves that they are simpler than real people. And right. that's why they're not real. But right. I think it's far truer a lot of the time when it's really well done that they're more complicated than real people. Right. Because real people can be a little more predictable. Right. In their behaviors, in their psyches. Right. Whereas a character is free to jump personalities. That's interesting um, because it's it's uh, almost contradictory to... Uh, something that uh, one of my good friends um, and friend of the show, shout out Nat Ryan, uh, who I believe has told me he's listened to every episode at this point except for Don Quixote episodes, and he's debating whether to read Don Quixote first. Um, I mean... I'm debating whether to tell him to or not. I know. Well, what I, <laughs> he, he, he broached the idea of reading an abridged version, and I said no. no. Either lose yourself in that 1100 page miasma or yep. just listen to our episodes yep don't do anything in between no um which he's go big he's, or go home <laughs> yes um you know i consider him one of like the most intelligent people i know so he was so, smart uh, enough to be most of the way there before even saying anything sure. to me but um nat nat and i have had some discussions and disagreements in the past over uh, the nature of character and Nat's whole thing is often that character characters in a fictional world could do anything so they have to prove themselves to be more consistent than real mm. people do interesting um, which I think is just sort of two very different philosophies of character and um, I don't think either of them is inherently incorrect i think no. you just have to figure out which philosophy the author you're reading is yeah going with um and i think shakespeare is hard on your hardcore on your end of uh the the end of things that you just said right sure. that that um he doesn't need his characters to be psychologically consistent in any kind of realistic method right which he wasn't writing realistic plays to begin no. with um, and that's part of, you know, that's one thing I've been meaning to bring up almost since the beginning of the last episode is the idea that Shakespeare wrote um, plays where, you know, in battle scenes, his actors would often go into the audience, grab audience members and like bring them up on stage to use as shields. <laughs> um, Shakespeare wrote soliloquies that the characters would deliver on an empty stage to the audience. Um, you know, there's there's records of... Uh, in Elizabethan times, you know, you'd have someone sort of heckling you the way people heckle stand-up comedians these days. And in character, you might have someone turn and, like, improvise a, a put-down to your heckler. Mm -hmm. Right? This was a much more porous... Um, I think I've ranted about this on the show before. is a much more porous conception of where the fourth wall is. Yeah. And in this case, the answer is nowhere. Mm -hmm. Um like there is no fourth wall and i think um you know it's it's another one of those things that seems like a postmodern trope of fiction that um for example emily sinjin mindel is uh trying to use here to sort of break down that fourth wall yeah but as with a lot of things that get called postmodern people just 
don't have a historical enough memory mm-hmm. to realize that this is actually bringing back something that's very old. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do want to mention one thing quickly. Yeah. I know we're butting right up against we're our close. time we're to close. give ratings and stuff, but um, another friend of the show, uh, Lydia Grabow, who I don't believe has ever managed to guest yet. No, she hasn't. We need to um, have her. She almost did today and then was unable and... Yeah, the um, butt. Yeah, she's a real butt and we don't like her, but we do like <laughs> her. So there's a there's a tension for you. Um, <laughs> We're all about that tension. <laughs> um, so uh, Lydia and I were talking about this book and Lydia, um, you know... Ages ago, uh, when we first figured out what books we were reading after Don Quixote, had texted me and was like, what are you reading next? And I said, it's it's this book, Station Eleven. Um, here's the author's name, blah, blah, blah. And Lydia texted me like a week later and was like, Station Eleven is so good, which was weeks before I ever read it. <laughs> um, and like, she and I had dinner last night as of when we were recording this, um, and we're talking about, uh, sta- got to talking about Station Eleven, and um, she had threatened to uh, write all of her thoughts about this book in an email and send it to us, and okay. I told her to do that, and she didn't, so oh, she's a jerk. butt again, and we hate her again. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, one thought I did manage to sort of chisel out of her was that... Um, she she loves the irony and i had not thought of this at all she loves the irony that uh arthur leander arguably the the prospero or the yep. lear yep. and he's both of, oh, absolutely both of this book um and the oberon and the bottom and... that it's <laughs> his son that goes and you pointed this out a little bit last episode in something that you left dangling but his son you know <laughs> He he has this very charismatic man has a son who then gets taken to Jerusalem, raised there by a very religious mother who is like, you know, the father isn't in the picture. He's just raised by by the mother, um, mm-hmm. sort of a, a corrupted virgin virgin birth image going on there. Yeah. Um, who then grows up to become a cult leader in this post apocalyptic world. And what Lydia pointed out was that. If there's if there's any like major widespread cult figures, cult leader figures in our world, especially in you know the the sort of United States, Canada, Western Europe realm of civilization, it's actors, it's celebrities. Ah. Um, so yeah. it's it's literally that you know yep. Arthur Leander's son inherited this this like. The cult. fame and the well, not only that, and... but like the charisma and the cult yep. leadership yep. from his father, it's just completely transmogrified. And it's interesting to use this trope of post-apocalyptic fiction and read that back into our current civilization and mm-hmm. see maybe there are cult leaders and maybe they're very destructive. Just they're people we don't expect, and it's in ways that we don't expect. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. Well, I think that's as good a spot to end as any on the note Lydia left us. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so thanks you're for that, welcome, Lydia. Lydia. You finally got your shout out. Actually, she's <clears throat> ghost guested on the show before because she gave us several of our talking points for uh, 
raise high the roof beams. Got oh, fingers. that's true. She did. Yeah. No. Nope. Yep. yep. That's right. Um. All right. So with that, then um, we know what we're reading next time. Yeah. Um. We are going to be discussing Things Not Seen by Andrew Clements. So read along with that. Um, but before we uh, talk about that, we need to rate this book. Yes. Ratings. Um, I forget now. Do Because we're going to be drinking the same scotch yeah. in the discussion of our next book. Do we rate it now or do we rate it then? We rate it then, I think. All right, let's do that. We'll rate it then. So let's talk about this book and yeah. rate this book. Um, you brought this book, so would you like to rate it first or would you like me to rate it first? You rate it first. All right, I'll rate it first. Um, on the scale of buy, borrow, forget about it. Yeah. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna blow wide open our paradigm for rating here. Yeah. Well. Uh... It was only a matter of time, and I'm surprised it took this long. <laughs> right. Um, now, in the paradigm, buy doesn't necessarily mean you're going to read it or value it at all. And borrow... I mean, I think it should mean that. It should. But and linguistically, Linguistically, I and borrow doesn't mean that you're not going to reread it. Yeah, yeah, and that's true. value it. And... That's true. Um, such and even forget about it to a certain extent doesn't mean that you won't come back to it and discover it again another time yeah so there I've blown wide open our paradigm and so with that big blowout um, so you can change my diaper later uh, I hate that a lot (laughs) we've done a lot of bad stuff on this podcast but that was one of the worst ones (laughs) Congratulations. Uh, I'm going to rate this borrow. Okay. And I'm going to defend that by saying it's not because I don't think you shouldn't... Let me get all my negatives in order. It's not because I don't think you should read it. There we go. Got it. Yeah, excellent. Because you should read it. Brought that shaky plane in for a landing. Woo! There we go. Full (laughs) circle. But but one of us has the plague, so oh, no. it doesn't even matter. So we'll stay on the tarmac. Yeah, <laughs> forever. <laughs> forever. Yeah. Um, so, when I say borrow, I mean find this book, borrow it, read it, and decide for yourself whether you want to reread it. And I'm going to say, I'm going to suggest that probably you will want to reread it. And I don't think you need to buy it necessarily. I'm going to say, think about it for a bit. And I'm still on the fence about whether I, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to keep this book. I'm not going to sell it or get rid of it or anything. And I'm probably going to reread it Mm -hmm. another time to get more out of it. But like I said, there are some things about it where just plot wise, because you know, you notice the one thing that we really didn't talk about in this entire book was the plot. What's the plot of the book? We didn't actually talk about it. And you know, maybe that's the point. Um, but <laughs> I mean, it sounds like it annoyed you, so it probably, so it probably is the point. Is the point. Um, but uh, just just the way the characters kind of were interesting, and then lost my interest. And I mean, that really is the the hill that this book lives or dies on, right? Because to briefly summarize the plot, there isn't one. Yeah, some stuff happens, and it affects the characters. 
But there's right. no real plot arcs. There's only character right. arcs. There, there's and there's no say, setup that is concluded by the end. Not not in a plot. I mean, in a very brief plot sense. Like, sure. The amount of plot this book contains could be contained in a short story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's certain setup things that do get paid off. Right. But, I mean, it's basically the stuff about the, when the uh, boy kills the prophet instead of helping the prophet kill. Right. Kirsten and, and her friends, which is very essential, but that's all the plot that there is. Right, more and or less. I will attest that the plot is, as far as you just described it, actually contained in book on two pages. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> um, but and the thing, the thing about it is, you shouldn't be able to have character arcs without plot arcs. Right, but this book does. Yeah, which is interesting. Which is why yeah. I'm not saying forget about it. Right. It's why I'm saying borrow it, read it, get intrigued by it, read it again. Yeah. And I am going to hold out my final judgment on it. It didn't blow me away like some of the other books we've had on the podcast right. where I've absolutely needed to own it and right. read it a million times. This one bears two reads at least, and I'll see if it needs more. Sure. So. Very good. Um, I'm going to say buy it unequivocally. Okay. Um, unlike certain people on this podcast who had to spend five minutes wow. tearing wow. apart our paradigm. Wow. In order shade. To, in order to wow. give his rating, I'm going to just unequivocally say buy it um, for two reasons. Well, we'll see if I can keep it to two. Um, <laughs> reason one does is actually a little bit provisional. Um and it's that the author is alive and currently writing. Yeah. And I am much more inclined to spend money, like, actually buy a, even a new copy and of a book. that was a big pressure for me to say buy, yeah. but I still am going to say borrow at the first stage yep. here. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. But, yeah, no, and, and you know, that's... Uh, anyway, I forgot what I was going to say. Yeah, so part, partly because, mm-hmm. yeah, this author is alive and writing now. And yep. quite frankly, I am very skeptical of modern authors, partly because, you know, when you read the classics, you're reading the 5 to 10% of books from a given era that survived. Yep. Um, and when we're in, you know, in the moment now, we just have all 100%, including the 90 plus percent that's crap. Right, the um, stuff that's not going to survive. Yeah. The stuff that and nobody's going to be talking about in 20, 25 years. Not only that, but I think quite often the stuff that everyone this year thinks is going to be around mm-hmm. in 25 years is not at all. Oh, yeah. And, you know, stuff that, that yeah. we may you not even know, know to know talk about. You know what scares me? Yeah. Can I, can, I, can I get real for a minute? Will be. I am terrified that in 50 years, our era is going to be known for Dean Koontz. And the Nicholas Sparks. All right. Since you already said the word scotch, I'm gonna say I think you. I think you're done with the scotch. No, so. give it back. <laughs> you just really got the like, the like paranoid shakes on me. <laughs> like I could see it in the eyes, and it was just a little bit terrifying. But anyway, no, Stephanie that, Meyer. That won't happen because every age. Has those authors. I know. Have you ever heard of Love Story? <laughs> oh. Exactly. Okay. Um, I'm going to let you and the gentle listener, if they don't know, look that up and understand right. 
what I'm talking if about. If I remember while I'm editing, I'll put a link to it in it, our show notes. But also, it's basically a walk to remember from the 70s. Correct. And no one remembers it anymore. Except you, apparently. Well, I only remember it because I have parents who are aged like fine wine. <laughs> um, but who remember things that Wow, you gave me a difficult sh- task of not. editing <laughs> right in there. Um... <laughs> Anyway, so, yeah, no, okay. don't worry. But what I'm saying is, so, like, living author. when I encounter a living author who challenges me as much as any classic author, um, any, mm. you know, anybody that I've ever read in a literature program, I don't need them to be perfect or to live up to um, any given standard of perfection. Uh, I just need there to be enough there, and I will say buy them, buy them while they're alive, support them and encourage them to do more things. Because I absolutely want to see what else um, Emily St. John Mandel has to give us. So that's number one for buy it. Number two for buy it is sort of the fact that like this is a book that has multiple very good, well done, satisfying character arcs. without having a real plot arc the plot is the world ended you know like civilization ended yeah um and there's so much here and like we spent we've spent two hours talking about this book and i do feel like we could spend two more hours on it i agree if if we wanted to and that's not every book on this podcast even ones that i think are objectively like better books than this i don't think that's necessarily true about Mm -hmm. sometimes there's two hours on a book and it's like we we I don't feel like I need to say any more about right. this. Um, and it. Right. And the fact that, as Michael said, I think you will probably want to reread it at least once. Mm-hmm. Um, I think are all... So that's three reasons when I said it would be two, but... You liar! Um, I'm not the one who kept having to respond to me and made this podcast go way over time <laughs> just a little bit over time so uh, i'm not gonna feel too bad about that by the fallacy of equivocation um great <laughs> so or ad hominem technically no anyway we'll figure out what fallacy well, it is and put a link in the show notes um <laughs> wow you're giving me work to do <laughs> yep well it's revenge for something i'm not sure what <laughs> i probably deserved it somewhere along the line yeah anyway, anyway. So yeah, I say I say buy it. I say definitely buy it. All right, then with that, gentle listener, you're going to have to tune back in to our next set of episodes to hear our rating on the Scotch, uh, the uh, Isla Storm. Uh, and uh, as I said, we'll be discussing Things Not Seen by Andrew Clements. So uh, read along, give us your feedback in the contact section of tapestryradio.org, and be sure to put this uh, in the subject line, Scotch Talk, so we know what you're talking about. Uh, also, find us at Room with Scotch on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. Sing it with me, kids. No. Oh. We hate you! Wow. Yeah. These kids are vicious. Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna throw them out in the cold after this. Yeah. Um, Go beg for scraps, you vermin. They've been pretty good and quiet this whole time. They've I know. Been they, sitting in here for with for us, two but... hours, they were yeah, quiet, and yeah. now they speak up. Well, it's like two and a half now, let's yeah, be I honest. Yeah, Um... <laughs> I am on Twitter at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Or Bjartlet. Bjartlet. For you common folk out there. Yeah. Uh, you can also contact us in the Tapestry Radio Tap House on Facebook. 
uh, request to join that closed group, the Tapestry Radio Tap House, and we will let you in unless you are a cult leader or a robot, as we said. Or a mother fostering a future cult leader. Or, yep, that too. Yep. Or an actor. No, if you're an actor, we'll probably let you in. That would would disqualify (laughs) a lot of our actual members. Yeah, it's true. Um, Also, we're going to do your homework if you give it to us. Uh, no, we don't promise to do it well, nor do we condone plagiarism. There's our little disclaimer. Just go to our website, tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. That's tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. Fill out the form for homework submission, and we will do our best and make it fun. And that's but what it's good. about. We not will good. not make it good. Just fun. So even if you plagiarize, it won't be worth it. Exactly. You'll and plagiarism get an F. is never worth it. Right. You'll get an F on the basis of plagiarism, and you'll get an F on the basis of the content. So just, And you'll go to prison for and plagiarism. you'll go to prison for plagiarism and based on the content. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you like our podcast, check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, like Intermission, our audio drama backstage podcast. Also, Here's Johnny, the horror review podcast, and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United actual play podcast. Uh, And please rate and review us and our other shows on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, That's uh, probably the best way to get other people to find out about our podcast besides just word of mouth. Uh, Especially because those are literally the only two ways we have of people doing that. Yep. So... That's, yep, that's literally it. No one finds our podcast unless someone tells them about it or it's reviewed well enough on other podcast platforms. Reviews and word of mouth are literally the only two ways we have to promote. There we go. Thank you for summarizing exactly what you said earlier and I made more complicated and then you simplified again. So. (laughs) Well, now you made it more complicated again, so guess what has to happen? Crap. Yeah. Uh... Also, check out my webcomic, Pinporter Girl Detective, pinportertetective.com. Um, it's a fairy tale noir detective uh, webcomic that is a webcomic. <laughs> I felt like I had more of that sentence, but I lost it, so here we are. Sure. All right. Yeah, check that out. And until next time, gentle, gentle listener. It's our party, and we'll cry if we want to. If we want you to. If, if, yep, if we want you to. If you want, we do. Nope. Bye.
because oh good they didn't find us oh good we're safe <laughs> okay anyway apparently stuff There's is a... happening today yeah sirens going crazy so yeah that's the magic of podcasting too you get to hear you get to hear sirens. environmental garbage noise because we're too lazy and bad at editing to get rid of it right if only we had like a sound studio or something that was soundproofed and anyway yeah was that your like patreon pitch for this episode because i yeah. gotta tell you that was way too midwestern even for this podcast. oh okay do i need to be a little more direct give yeah. me money <laughs> well well We'll workshop it. Okay. From, from jail, I guess. From, I guess. What is going on? They found us, is what. Yeah. They traced the source of the illegal podcast cassette tapes. To oh, no. Here. Not this again. We've been safe for so long. I mean, it's been like one to two episodes, but. I think you pretty much just left it as a, at a soft implication in the Don Quixote episode. Did so I? We've did been I never yeah. explicitly say podcast no. cassettes? No, I don't think you ever did. Huh. Well. You just talked us into saying it every episode for the next, like, seven. Crap. Yeah, well. Um, so to distract you from that, here's a red herring. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.